From the book of Proverbs, chapter eight, starting with verse one. Does not wisdom call out? Does not understanding raise her voice? At the highest point along the way, where the paths meet, she takes her stand. Beside the gate leading into the city, at the entrance, she cries aloud. To you, O people, I call out. I raise my voice to all mankind. The Lord brought me forth as the first of his works before his deeds of old. I was formed long ages ago at the, be- at the very beginning when the world came to be. When there were no watery depths, I was given birth. Where there were no springs overflowing with water, before the mountains were settled in place, before the hills, I was given birth. Before he made the world or its fields or any of the dust of the earth, I was there when he set the heavens in place. When he marked out the horizon on the face of the deep, when he established the clouds above and fixed securely the fountains of the deep, when he gave the sea its boundary so the waters would not overstep his command, and when he marked out the foundation of the earth, then I was constantly at his side. I was filled with delight day after day, rejoicing always in his presence, rejoicing in his whole world, and delighting in mankind. The word of the Lord. From the book of Romans, chapter 5, starting with verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings, because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, and character hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. The word of the Lord. Reading from the Gospel of St. John, chapter 16, starting with verse 12. I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears, and he will tell you what is yet to come. He will glorify me, because it is from me that he will receive what he will make known to you. All that belongs to the Father is mine. That is why I said the Spirit will receive from me what he will make known to you. The Gospel of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, good morning, everyone. It's good to see you all on this Trinity Sunday slash Father's Day day. I know I do this every time, but I, um, I, I kind of just geek out about it, how the church calendar and the, um, and the kind of uh, country's calendar, the nation's calendar, uh, sometimes interchange in really funny ways and kind of weird ways, and sometimes they're in nice ways. And, and so, you know, last year we had the uh, Valentine's Day and Ash Wednesday were on the same day. And so you tell your spouse or your significant other that you love them and then also that they're going to die, right? Um, <laughs> but, uh, and today is interesting. It's Trinity Sunday and Father's Day. And so I, you know, over the years I've tried 
I've seen people try and I've tried myself to where you kind of mash them together. You kind of figure out how do I do a Father's Day sermon that's also a Trinity Sunday sermon and Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that seems to make sense, but we get into hot water sometimes because our definition and our understanding of fatherhood is not the same thing as understanding God as Father, so can't really mash them together. So I'm gonna focus on Trinity Sunday today, but dads, we love you. We have a special gift for you. We're gonna talk about that um, in a little bit, but today is Trinity Sunday. We are acknowledging this beauty of our one God who is three persons. So figure that out, sort that out in your brain. And you can see, again, I talked about this at the very very beginning of service, but you can see why this kind of fits in the church calendar. We have Easter, talked about the relationship between the Father and the Son. In Easter, we see that a lot. His life, his death, his resurrection. And then we have the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on all flesh. You've got all these days all in a row. And then I think there's a point where the church and the making of the church calendar goes, all right, we got to kind of put all this together now. We have Father and Son and Holy Spirit. So Trinity Sunday is this kind of way of us standing in that mystery of we serve a God who is one God. We have that in common with our Jewish friends and our Muslim friends that we believe in one God. And yet the Christian faith affirms that that one God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That is three persons. What? Yes. (laughs) What? And yes, this morning. Um, And yet, this Sunday is a little strange in a lot of ways. And some theologians, I I remember the first Sunday that I had to preach on a Trinity Sunday. Our church was just experimenting with the church calendar. Trinity Sunday also follows right, or um, happens right in the dead of summer, you know, right in the middle of summer right now. And so it's also a great time in larger churches where the associate pastor is invited to preach. And so that particular Sunday, um, my senior pastor, who was my dad, wanted me to preach that morning. And so I'm like, great, Trinity Sunday. So the 20-something-year-old associate pastor gets to explain the Trinity to our congregation this morning. And I remember being so intimidated and so freaked out. And it's for that reason there's theologians out there that say, let's just throw out this Sunday because pastors feel way too much pressure to explain this incredible mystery to their congregations on Trinity Sunday. So there are some that do that, but, but it's important for us to remember the doctrine of the Trinity is precise. Here's what I mean by that. The doctrine itself is actually clear. It's not ambiguous. Christians affirm this, one God revealed in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And then in the Nicene Creed, which is kind of a more detailed explanation even than the Apostles' Creed that we say together, in the Nicene Creed, it says the Son is begotten of the Father, the Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. So the doctrine is not a mystery. The doctrine itself is clear. What I just said is the doctrine of the Trinity. We confess it. This is what we believe. Now, what does the doctrine mean? We have no idea, okay? So the doctrine is clear. The doctrine of the Trinity is not mystery, but the reality that the doctrine points to is the mystery. Um, My hope today is not to try to clear up the Trinity for you. Um, In fact, I think if the Trinity ever gets cleared up for us, we've probably missed something. But my hope is for each of us to see that the one God is creator, that the one God is the beginning of all wisdom, of all peace, of all love, of all truth. It's important for us to see also that this idea of God within God's self is relationship. 
So somehow God is one, and yet within God's self, there is a mutual relation of being. The fancy theological term for this is perichoresis, which is kind of like a dance. (laughs) So within God, there is this dance of relationship, this dance of self-giving love, the Father giving to the Son, the Son giving to the Spirit, the Spirit giving to the Father and giving to the Son, back and forth and back and forth within God's self. There is within God's self a to and fro, a give and take, a command and obey. Love is given and love is received. Proverbs 8, that passage that we read today, I think is so interesting. We don't normally read from the book of Proverbs necessarily as the primary text for our sermon. Um, But this text is particularly interesting in light of Trinity Sunday. If, If you heard that and you listened to what Sarah read, wisdom is a character in Proverbs 8. Wisdom is not just an attribute, wisdom is a person. And that's such an interesting thing. That's something you see throughout the Bible, that wisdom is not just a, it's not just a wise person. Wisdom is a person, a character, an, an actor. In fact, it's wisdom, it's, it's in first person in this passage. It's as if this person wisdom, who is given a feminine gender, by the way, so lady wisdom is what we see throughout the book of Proverbs. Um, it, it's as if wisdom is writing the book. Wisdom is writing the Proverbs. And there's this belief somehow in that, that wisdom was with God from the beginning. So wisdom is part of God's character, God's nature. Somehow wisdom is its own character, its own person, and yet also part of God at the same time. Within Judaism, there's actually what's called the wisdom tradition. It's based on sections of the biblical story that recognize the mystery of wisdom within God's created order. Walter Brueggemann says, wisdom in the Old Testament refers to a body of accumulated teaching based on discernment and reflection about the character and mystery of life. So the wisdom tradition tries to seek out God's created order in the world. Like how did God make the world? How were things shaped? And what does that say about his character? And then it sometimes uses common sense to get close to God's desire for humankind. Like, how do we live the best life? How do we live the life that God's created us to live? Now, I'm not saying that wisdom is pragmatism. It's not pragmatism. It's not, it's not just, the, hey, what's the easiest way to do this? Or what's maybe the most practical way to do this? But it's a desire to look at the world around us and to reflect and seek out ways of being in the world that are consistent with who God is. Now, wisdom is different from revelation. Uh, Much of the Bible is revelation. So God acts and God speaks in big, significant ways. Okay, so God does these things, these big action happens, and God speaks, and it's based on God telling humanity or showing humanity what to do and how to live. That's revelation. Wisdom is different. It's like, instead of top down, it's kind of like bottom up. It's trying to figure out the best way to be in the world, the best way that God's created us to be. In this passage in Proverbs and the verses before it, Lady Wisdom calls people to herself so that they can learn how to be truly human. Now remember, being human is not something bad. I've said this before. Like we tend to say this whenever we do something wrong or we do something off or limited. We say, well, I'm only human. So we're trying to say, I'm not a superhero or something. I'm only human. But God didn't create humans as a bad thing. (laughs) Humanity is good. 
So God invites us to be fully human, more human than we are right now, because being human means to reflect and worship God. Now, of course, we humans are broken because of sin, but God's desire is to put us back together so that we might be that full reflection who he's created us to be. So wisdom is something other than revelation. Revelation includes dramatic things that Yahweh did for his people, top-down experiences, but there's also space for experiences from below. And why is this important? Well, wisdom is about the wrestling. It's about the struggle. It's about the times where we don't clearly see the path. It's about the times where we don't know black and white really clearly. That's wisdom. It's that wrestling and figuring out how is God present with me and working with me in between revelation, in the midst of our lives, in day in and day out, in birth and in death, in love and in hate, in joy and strife and good and evil and peace and war. We need wisdom. The wisdom tradition is not competing with revelation. It works in harmony with revelation. So when we talk about the wisdom tradition in the Bible, we're usually talking about the books of Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Job oftentimes. So these are the books that often are called the wisdom tradition. Now, there are also a couple of books that if you open up your Bible today, they're not in there, but they're part of the Jewish tradition of wisdom, and they're in the Roman Catholic canon, namely the wisdom of Solomon and Sirach. N.T. Wright says, wisdom in the biblical tradition includes in its wide embrace both the encyclopedic collection and arrangement of the data, the evidence, the facts, and then this, listen, that strange soft something which sneaks round the back and asks the question, but what's it all for? What does it mean and what should we do with it? That's wisdom. Now, the early New Testament writers started to see that there was something about Jesus that seemed to be the fulfillment of what Lady Wisdom was all about. That there's something about Jesus that was the embodiment of true wisdom and the way to be in the world. Jesus is wisdom in the flesh. Jesus is also truth in the flesh. He's God's revelation. In fact, Jesus is the place where revelation and wisdom meet in Christ. He was in the beginning with God. Before anything was made, he was there. And then also, wisdom is identified with God's spirit, the Holy Spirit. The first time the Holy Spirit is ever mentioned in the Old Testament is, is filling a guy who most of us have never heard of. We don't learn about him in Sunday school very often. Has anybody ever heard of Bezalel? Okay, a few people have heard of Bezalel. Bezalel is his character in the book of Exodus, and he has this task. So we are always taught that Moses was the one who built the temple, but Bezalel was really the artist who crafted the temple, okay? So Bezalel was this craftsman, this artist, and he drew together all of the people of Israel and all of their stuff and all of their passions and all of their skills in order to build the temple, And so the text says, and I have filled him, Bezalel, with the spirit of God, with wisdom, with understanding, with knowledge, and with all kinds of skills. The work of the spirit brings out art and craftsmanship. Wisdom is is about becoming skilled artisans in everyday life, wrestling with craftsmanship in our everyday life. 
Somehow this thing, wisdom, which is at God's heart, is something in which human beings are invited to participate. God lives in us, and that means God's with us in the trenches. When we struggle with doubt and disillusionment, God doesn't leave us, he's with us in that. Jesus refers to the Holy Spirit as counselor. Wisdom is part of who God is. The heart of wisdom is discernment. So I guess the question from this is, are you wrestling with like the rhythm of your life right now? Are things, do things not seem really clear? Like, is there a question of what am I supposed to do? Am I even doing the right thing? Does life feel ambiguous when you want it to be clear? Not as black and white as you'd like. I guess the reality today and what I want us to hear is that God is with you in that. That wisdom is being cultivated in you even in that ambiguity and in that struggle. I think the deeper we grow in our journey with the Lord, the more we have to become comfortable with ambiguity, with struggle. And I think God will often challenge us with that. When I was younger, I remember feeling like I heard God's voice crystal clear. That I remember being a teenager and feeling like wherever I went, it was a clear experience with God, that I heard his voice, that I felt the feelings, that all that kind of stuff happened. And it was just clear. And I wanted to just hold on to that and know that. And we could talk about, is that have to do with the adolescent brain? And as I got older, I recognized God still speaks, but it's often way more like relational and complex and less directional than it was and less clear. Um, my friend, Dr. Green, who's a theologian, he, uh, he said that grace is in both experiencing God or feeling God and in blindness. Grace is on both of those. So if you feel blind to God, there's grace on that. If you feel or experience God, there's grace on that. Why? Well, he said this, the latter blindness is actually more true. What? It's more true. Experience with God, we bring God into ourselves and our emotions, which is fine and great. God stepped into our world and we celebrate that. But God is always so beyond what we can feel or experience that when we don't experience him, that's actually more true to who he is because he's so different than our experience, right? So when we're not experiencing God, we're still experiencing him <laughs> because he's so beyond us, we're experiencing his beyondness. That's what happened to me, right? When I heard this. So even if you feel more dis if you feel distance from God today, no, first of all, that's just a perceived distance because he's close to you and that's okay. He's with you and he's working in you. But you are also so blessed and so graced to get a sense that God is beyond your feelings and experience. That's grace. Sometimes we will get revelation, we'll get clarity, we'll see things clearly. But often it's that wisdom that's working in us in the everyday struggle that is happening below the surface. That was the primary text today, but I wanna hit these other texts here as we move forward. Romans five, um, this God is also the source of our peace. Um, this Romans passage that we read, because of what God has done in Christ. So it says, because you've been justified, which the definition of justification is that you've been declared in the right, 
You've been declared as part of God's family. Because of that, we have peace, all right? Now, don't skip over that. So we've been declared in the right, and since we've been justified, what do we get from that? What do we get because we're justified? Well, do we get just a warm feeling in our heart? Do we get a sigh of relief that our sins are forgiven? Do we get a new understanding of what it means to be God's people? Yes, we get all of that. But at the center of it all, we have peace with God. That's, that's the center of it all. So this is the fulfillment of our story. Human beings have been estranged from God and God has called us in and we have peace. One of the things that was so important for us when we adopted Lucy and the thing that we celebrated was that we have an open adoption. And that means that Lucy has a good relationship with her birth mom. So uh, we know that we can call her anytime, that she can call us anytime. We have conversations about how much is appropriate and all those kind of things. But, but we know that that relationship is there and that was just so critical and so important to us. In fact, we were really surprised a few Father's Days ago, uh, a couple Father's Days ago, when, um, you know, when you go through these open adoptions, a lot of times they tell you it's important to have a relationship with the birth mom. Nobody ever has a relationship with the birth father. It just, it just doesn't happen in these situations, unfortunately. And a few Father's Days ago, Lucy's birth father reached out to us and asked to have a relationship with her. And that's been such a blessing for her to know him. Um, I'll tell you guys, you guys are family here, but it's kind of hard to explain to a little one what a birth father is, right? <laughs> that's a little less challenging than the one who carried you in their womb, right? The birth father's role is a little bit more difficult to share. Um, but, uh, but, but navigating that relationship has been a really beautiful thing. And, and I think about that, and I think about that relationship and the fact that Lucy knows them and is in relationship with them. And I thought about that in relationship to this passage because it is the God who is not content with kind of keeping that distance from us, but who knows us, right? Who has drawn close to us, who's come close to us. He always wanted relationship with us. And through Jesus Christ, this passage says, we have a personal relationship with him. Now, on one level, this seems ludicrous. Like the God who created the world, the God of the universe wants relationship with me. In fact, this is why um, it's a struggle for some people who are uh, physicists, astrophysicists, kind of live in that world because they go, we've got this giant complex universe that's come about through so many of these things. And they're rightly saying all of that. And they're saying, the fact that you think that you have a personal relationship with the one who created that is so cute right? Like some people will tend to say that. And we can imagine why. This God who created the world, the stars and the planets, doesn't he have other things to think about? And yet we believe, Christians affirm, that the one who created the universe created it because at his core is love. His nature is love. That's who he is. So love is natural for him, okay? So the creation comes out of his love, and then also his relationship with us comes out of his love. And we think of ourselves as relational creatures, and we are, we are relational creatures, but our capacity for relationship pales in comparison to God's capacity for relationship. He is so much more relational than we are. That's why this Trinity thing is so significant. Within God's self is relationship. 
We are relationally stunted, so we make our relationships hard and awkward, don't we? And we make our relationship with him hard and awkward, so we try to earn his approval. Or when we're in sin, we keep distance from him because we're afraid he's going to be ashamed of us, and yet he's always there and he always embraces us. Do you know, do you know the people in your life? Are there people in your life who really care about you And you know that because their first response to you when you're going through something is love. If if you don't have those relationships in your life, my hope is you'll experience that here. Um, That their first response to you is love. It's like if somebody says, man, I can't seem to get my act together. Like I can't seem to do things right. I keep messing up over and over again. I hope there's someone in your life that says, dude, you are loved. That that's the first response. The first response is not disappointment. The first response is not fixing. Those things may be appropriate in due time, but the first response is love. That's God's first response to us. Now, part of God's relationship with us is when we are reconciled to God, not only does he love us, it's not just that we kind of just sit in his lap for eternity, (laughs) but that he invites us to participate in his kingdom. So we get to join in and do his story. And with that, there come stressors and problems of the world, okay? So we're not called, Christians are not part of a religion where we're supposed to ascend to a higher plane of reality. That's not what we're called to do. So we're not supposed to, okay, I received Christ in my life and now I'm just supposed to kind of live my life floating above ground, right? No, we're called into the mess of everyday life, into the struggle and the wrestling. And through things like jobs and spouses and friends and dishes and dirty diapers and laundry, all of that stuff, God invites us to live out his kingdom. These stressors require us not to rely on our own strength, but to hang on to the faith and hope in God, even when things don't feel like they're happening or anything feels like it's happening. It's important to remember that, that feelings in our life, feelings of God's presence are, are not a good metric for us. Now, feelings are good. There's nothing wrong with feelings. We should praise God when we have good feelings. But they can't be how we measure things in our lives, right? Um, emotions often deceive us And this is part of our wisdom cultivation. These things are not often clear. So what is the goal? If feeling close to God is is not the goal in our lives, if it's not just having an emotional experience, then what is it? Well, walking with God is the goal, okay? Even when we feel it and when we don't feel it. Then the reason for this is because suffering tends to do away with those feelings. When When we're suffering or we're struggling, then a lot of times those those good vibes that we get go away. That's just reality. It's hard to feel God when you suffer, but suffering is part of life. And that's part of what Paul is trying to get us to understand here, is that there's something beneath the shifting sands of our feelings, okay? And and don't, I don't wanna be the anti-feelings guy, okay? So I hope you don't hear me saying this, like, God does beautiful, and I had a beautiful and amazing experience in worship this morning, right? I think that God does those things and we celebrate that and we go, that was God's revelation reminding me of of this reality. 
But those things shift so often is what I'm trying to say. There's rock underneath it. There's something more solid underneath of it. I have a friend who's a pastor in Smyrna and this last week, his wife died of cancer. And we've been walking him through it. We've been in relationship with him. And I, I went to the memorial the other night. But the Sunday after she passed, last Sunday, he was at church. And I, I watched the, the stream later on, the recording of, the, of, of what he said. And he came up, and, and I was just amazed. He came up to just share with the congregation how he was doing, and hey, here's when the memorial's gonna be, and all those kind of things. And he said this, he said, some people are asking me, why am I here today? And he said, but I just say to him, where else would I be? This is where God's people are gathering. This is where I should bring my pain and my struggle, and the fact that I'm not okay right now. And it just amazed me so much. Now, some of that may be some denial on his part. That's natural. Some shock that he's in. And that's fine, and that's appropriate. But, but Ronnie, my friend, had a steady rock underneath his feelings. There's something in him that goes, this is where I'm supposed to be and bring all of my stuff, whether I'm feeling good or feeling bad. And he's been walking with the Lord for a long time, and that's obvious. And that's what Paul's saying here. He's saying we stand in grace. It's like we breathe in this new reality. We're in a state of grace, and it's not something we have to earn, and we don't climb through levels of the Christian life. I thought for a long time that, like, if I, I was just every year, I would maybe climb another rung of the Christian faith, and I'd go up another level, another level. And then I started to figure out it feels a little bit more like this, right, <laughs> every once in a while. Uh, but we don't have to weave in and out of grace. We're constantly in God's grace. And that doesn't depend on how we feel or what our circumstances are. We can rejoice in it. And in this, we're invited to be truly human, true reflections of the living God in the world. And then finally, as a closing, our John text. Um, in these verses in John's gospel, we have one of the most pronounced explanations of the triune God in scripture. And this has happened, Jesus has said this before Pentecost. Jesus is promising the Holy Spirit, so it's even before he's gone to the cross. And he says, but when he, the spirit of truth comes, so he's promising the Holy Spirit, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own, he will speak only what he hears, and he will tell you what is yet to come. He will glorify me because it is from me that he will receive what he will make known to you. All that belongs to the Father is mine. That is why I said the Spirit will receive from me what he will make known to you. Now, these last words of Jesus, when I've read them before, and then some of the passages in Paul, there's so many pronouns that get thrown around over and over again, and they just can make your brain hurt if you read it and you don't actually sit down and dissect it. But what this is stressing is the unity of the Father, Son, and Spirit, that God is one. Okay, there is no part of the Father that is not in the Son, Jesus. There will no be, Jesus is promising the Holy Spirit and the Spirit will only do what is in Christ, what is in the Son, okay? So there's a unity here. Why is that significant? Well, Jesus says, all that belongs to the Father is mine. And elsewhere, he said, I and the Father are one and he who has seen me has seen the Father. Well, I said this earlier, I gave away this, this quote earlier in the service, but T.F. Torrance used to say, there is no God behind the back of Jesus. That it is the same God. That it is not that the Father is an angry old man with a beard who enforces the law 
And Jesus is the young, cool God who says, dad, that's way too harsh. No, they're one. What we see in Jesus is God himself. So that is important, the consistency in God's character. And secondly, the Holy Spirit will never tell us something that doesn't look and sound like Jesus, okay? That's why I think it's blasphemous to talk about the power of the Holy Spirit in self-serving terms. The Holy Spirit is always loving and always self-giving, okay? So these traditions that I grew up in that use the power of the Holy Spirit to try to just accumulate more wealth or more money or more prosperity, no, that's not God's character. That doesn't look like Jesus, Also, the Holy Spirit produces in us the fruit of the Spirit. That's where that comes from. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. That's developed in our life because the Holy Spirit lives in us. Eugene Peterson points out something beautiful about this passage and the prayer that follows in John 17. There are no imperatives in this. Jesus is not commanding us to do anything in these things. Jesus doesn't command his disciples to do anything. Peterson says this, Jesus is not telling us how to practice what some call spirituality, how to do it. He's telling us how it is done. Spiritual formation is primarily what the spirit does, forming in us the resurrection life of Christ. There's not a whole lot we can do here, Peterson says any more that we can pitch in and work on the cosmos. (laughs) That's the work of the Spirit at creation. Any more than we can assist Jesus in the salvation of the world, the work of the Spirit at Jesus' baptism. But there is a great deal the Spirit can do in us. The resurrection community is the Spirit's work, Peterson says. And he goes on to say that what we can do is be receptive and be obedient. That's all we're called to do. It's the Spirit's work for us to receive. I began thinking about each of you this week and about what you might be facing right now in your life. Um, When I say that, some of your faces start to panic a little bit. I I wasn't thinking too much about you this week, but (laughs) think about what you might be facing. And I thought about parents struggling to try to steal some sleep, thought about working retail jobs and all the joy that is involved in that, I thought about grieving the loss of loved ones, some of you. I thought about making spreadsheets, now often that happens. Thought about writing songs, seeing clients, planning lessons, racing a dirt bike, running rucks to prepare for basic, as most of us were doing this week. Thought about dishes and laundry and dirty diapers and parents who feel like they might be going crazy because their kids are off for the summer. Jesus begins this section of John's gospel, which is often considered his farewell to the disciples, and he begins this whole section by washing feet. He ends this section in prayer. And I thought about that these are the two markers of the Christian life, doing everyday tasks serving others to the glory of God, the washing of feet, and always looking to him, those two things together. The Spirit is doing a deep work in you even if you don't know it today. In the soaring, exciting, joy-filled moments, yes, but also in the struggle 
and in the suffering and in the ambiguity, he's doing a work in you. By the Holy Spirit, the creator of the universe and the savior of the world lives within us and those everyday things can be turned to the glory of God. Amen? Amen. Let's stand together.